I'm actually feeling pretty fiery this morning. Um, and so I'm just bracing myself to ask the Holy Spirit to help me communicate well. Because I, I know that God is doing something so beautiful in our house and our community. And he's really shepherding our hearts um, and preparing us and positioning us for what he's called us to. Amen. So many of you, I mean, I have the privilege of hearing your stories and just hearing the encounters that you've had in this last season where God is marking you, setting you apart, speaking to your heart, drawing you closer to Him. Revelation of His grace, of His goodness is opening up your heart to receive. Um, it's really, really special. And so I know that God is building on every uh, truth and revelation that we're receiving. We want to be built on Jesus. We want to be a people of His presence. We want to be rooted and grounded in the, the purity of the gospel. Um, and uh, we want to be transformed by Him. Amen. Not our own attempts, our own efforts to be better. We want Him. It's one of my favorite quotes, Watchman, he used to say this years ago, he said, God is not looking for your attempt at Christ-likeness. He's looking for his Christ in you. And that's a joy. He's not looking for you to, to do your best to be like Jesus. He's looking for his spirit, his Jesus, his Christ, his son in you, manifesting his life. In, in a unique and beautiful way because you're designed uniquely, but it's the marks of Christ. It's the nature of Jesus. Amen. Also, Elze is here. I'm so happy about this. She was born two weeks ago, and Maurice and Nats are here. I mean, that's, come on, guys, two weeks in and you're here. I love it. So proud of you. We love you. She is so beautiful, man. She's the best. Anyway, I'm going to get emotional, so I'm moving on. All right, this morning I want to preach or share on the purity and potency of the gospel of grace. And by the end of it, hopefully when I say that, you'll be like, yes, it is pure and potent. Amen. If you could take your Bibles and open to Ephesians 2. We're going to read from verse 4 to verse 10, and I'm reading out of the Amplified. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to dive in. Okay. Everybody there, all close. Awesome. Ephesians 2, 4 to 10. But God, being so very rich in mercy, say mercy, because of his great and wonderful love with which he loved us, even when we were spiritually dead and separated from him because of our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. For by his grace... His undeserved favor and mercy, you have been saved from God's judgment. And he raised us up together with him when we believed and seated us with him in the heavenly places because we are in Christ Jesus. And he did this so that in the ages to come, he might clearly show the immeasurable and unsurpassed riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus by providing for our redemption. For it is by grace, God's remarkable compassion and favor, drawing you to Christ, that you've been saved, actually delivered from judgment and given eternal life through faith. And this salvation is not of yourselves, not through your own effort, but it is the undeserved gracious gift of God, not as a result of your works nor your attempts to keep the law, so that no one will be able to boast or take credit in any way for his salvation. For we are his workmanship. His own masterwork, a work of art, created in Christ Jesus, reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, ready to be used for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand, taking paths which He set, so that we would walk in them, living the good life which He prearranged and made ready for us. 
I just said a lot, but right there, that's wild. I don't know if, you, if you're catching this as we're reading this, but let me just break it down a little bit, and then I'm going to dive into really what I feel the Lord's saying. But this scripture last night just began to wash over my heart and over my soul, and I want you to see a few things. Number one, but God being so very rich in mercy. Mercy is the nature of God. It is not something He has to try to feel or try to uh, uh, release over us or something that He has to be intentional about. It's who He is. Mercy is His nature. And it's because He's so rich in mercy and because of His great and wonderful love with which He loved us, even when we were dead and separated from Him. You need to catch this. His mercy and His love for you was not conditional to your behavior. Right? It wasn't. And it's never going to be. His mercy and His love, while you were separated from Him, dead in your sin, He was rich in mercy, and He was loving you with a love that was not based on your behavior. You get this? In that state, that's when He made us alive together with Christ. In other words, the invitation to salvation, the invitation to transformation, and to receiving who He is, was not, here's an invitation, come get it right, and when you get to this stage, I'll give you who I am. While you were dead, while you were a sinner, in your worst, most horrible state and situation, the worst of the worst, and the one you're thinking about now, worse than that one. In that state, He was rich in mercy, and He loved you. And he made you alive together with Christ. It says, for by his grace, his undeserved favor and mercy, you've been saved from God's judgment. And he raised us up together with him. So we know we died with him. We were also raised with him. Raised up together with him when we believed and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In other words, God has already done a whole work in your life before you've even done anything. The grace of God takes you from nothingness in your sin saves you, redeems you, transforms you, gives you newness of life, and seats you at the right hand of the Father before you've even done a thing. And you can go, well, that's, that's just crazy. Yep. It's scandalous. It's wild. It should offend your mind every single day. I haven't done a single thing, and this is how good God is. I haven't even said yes yet. All I know is, Jesus, you, I believe in you. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know how, what this, how it's outworked. But he's taken my life from sin and brokenness and nothingness, saved me, cleaned me, redeemed me, transformed me. I died with Christ. That life is over, never again to speak into my present or my future. And then he takes me, raises me with Christ, fills me with his spirit, says you're a son, not just by title. You actually have my spirit inside of you to live like a son. And not only that, I'm going to present you before the Father, like it says in Colossians, holy, blameless, beyond reproach. Are you kidding me? I haven't done anything except say, I believe in you. And now he's presenting me before the Father and he says, not just present you. Yes, now I say you are holy, blameless, and above reproach, but I also want you to sit at my right hand. Authority, government, sonship. Now listen to this. He seated us with him in the heavenly places because we are in Christ Jesus. And he did this, listen to this man, there's, a, there's intention to what he's doing. He saves us, he's, he, he's done everything I just described, we're seated at the right hand of the Father, and it says, and he did this so that in the ages to come, he might clearly show the immeasurable and unsurpassed riches of his grace. It is God's intention to astound us with his grace. It's immeasurable, it's unsurpassed riches of His grace. It's crazy, it's wild. It's got to be so insane that we spend the rest of our time on the earth going, I don't know if I'll ever actually comprehend this, but my heart comes alive because He's that good. I have to get caught up 
in the splendor and the wonder and the majesty of Jesus. See, when we say that, we're not just talking about he's quite a shiny being. The splendor. No, it's way more than that. It's his nature. It's his goodness. His grace is so good. It's so good that it's, it sounds too good to be true, but it's so good because it is true. We've got to get wrapped up in him. It's immeasurable. It's unsurpassed riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Hmm. For it's by grace, God's remarkable compassion and favor. Are you hearing these adjectives? This is, this is the nature of God. It's like, it's like just when you think, wow, he's so good. It's like even more compassion and favor and mercy and kindness and grace and goodness and his love. And it's like, man, he is just this never-ending force of love that is constantly cascading over you. And the thing is, he did everything that needed to be done so that never again would you be separated from this love that we're talking about. No, you don't get it yet, but we're getting there. It's all good. Because when you get it, you're going to start, the things start to happen. No, listen. This is incredible. This changes everything about who we are. Because there's not a single thing that you will go through in life. There's not a single situation, disappointment, circumstance, failure, sin. Whatever it is that you can think of, it cannot separate you. The only thing that could separate you from Him is to not believe that He's that good. He's saying, I've made a way. I've done everything possible. The only thing that could separate you from me is for you to say that I'm not that good. Just stick with me. We're going to dive into this. I love this. This salvation is not of yourselves, not through your own effort. But it's the undeserved gracious gift of God, not as a result of your works, nor your attempts to keep the law. So that no one will be able to boast or take credit in any way for the salvation. For we are his workmanship. There's that scripture that you put on your fridge. Where is workmanship? You know that really nice one. But have you read what's before it? Can you see what he's talking about? For if we're his workmanship, he's saying, what you're going to become in me, I do, not you. You're the clay on the wheel. I shape, I form, I create. You yield. The Christian life can be summed up in one word, receive. And I'll tell you, you go like, no, but no, no, hold on. There's a receive, but there's also the, the good works we're about to read. Yeah, guess where they come from? They cannot be your works. They have to be His workmanship. They have to be the works of Christ in you and through you. So how do you get His works, the workmanship of Jesus, in you and through you? Receive. How do you receive? Believe that He's good. Believe that what He's saying is true. Believe that He's actually done this. It's not based on how you feel. Can I encourage you? So many of us in this room are chasing a manifest encounter with God, which is beautiful. I, I want it. I love them. I think we, we, every single one of us need them. Tangible manifestation of encounter. But if we pursue that before we pursue believing, you'll be chasing this for a long time. Don't pursue that. Pursue believing. Because when I, when I believe and I know that He loves me like I just described, I am a, I'm walking in a constant expectation that God is about to divinely interrupt my day and I'm about to get smashed and wrecked and transformed. And why? Because he, you don't get it. He really loves me. See, Christians, if we could live like this, if we walked around knowing, you don't understand, I'm held by grace. Grace holds me in every season. My confidence is not in my own ability. My confidence is in Him. I have an expectation to see my life live consistently in Him, not because I think I can do it well, but because I really believe He's that good. And in your weakness, His power is made perfect. 
Do you see this? What it does is it shifts our perspective. It changes our language. And it also helps us to be careful what our lens and our perspective of others is. I want to have the same lens and perspective that he looks at me with. I want to have that lens for others. Does that make sense? So where is workmanship? His own masterwork, a work of art, created in Christ Jesus, reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, ready to be used for good works. Not just good works, but good works which God prepared for us. This was like, see, when you're in Christ, you can't mess this up. Are you getting this? It's good works which God prepared for us beforehand, taking paths which He set. So that we would walk in them, living the good life which He prearranged and made ready for us. In other words, Jesus has actually walked the path for you and now He's saying, come. Jesus has already prepared the good works for you. The works that are going to come from your life are works of His righteousness, not your own. You get this? Now, the supernatural, science, wonders, and miracles are, are normal. The impossible becomes a playground. It becomes the place where I expect the realm of God to be manifest on the earth because He's prepared them before me. I am walking to take a hold of what He's given me. This is why we can release healing. I am not trying to summon God to heal somebody. He has already released healing, and I am grabbing a hold of what He's given me by His grace and taking it to, to be mine and manifest on this, in this realm. Are you with me? Grace will produce His righteousness and His resurrection life and transforming power in you and through you. This is not, I want to just say this, this is not just a message. This is not just that message that we, you know, you need to hear every couple of months at church just to like, thank God. It's not that. This is, this is oxygen in the kingdom. This is how we live. This is where we stand. This is how we wake up every day and position ourselves to live. Are you with me? Okay. So I want to just very, I don't have the time to unpack this uh, very deep, but I'm going to just tackle a few things that hopefully help us understand that this gospel that I'm talking about, it is the purity and the potency of the gospel of grace. It changes everything. And when I say everything, it doesn't just mean, yes, it changed my heart and, and now I'm saved. It changes my nature. It changes my way. It changes my reactions. It changes my emotions. It changes my thinking. And even as a pastor, I'm reminded constantly that we have to keep coming back to this truth, to this revelation, and let it wash us. And let it continually renew our mind. And let it, let it be not just something that we agree with, but something that we are daily believing and walking in. Amen? So the, the first question which we have to ask ourselves is, why did God make man? And that's a whole sermon in itself. I'm not going to go down there, but I'm going to touch on a few things. God definitely and very evidently in Scripture did not make man so that He could give man a standard and say, let's see the best you can do at reaching this. God is not the kind of God who goes, I'm going to make man to see if they can compete with me. Right? That would be, that would be silly. You would go through all this, you create all this just to make, make man and go, let, give it your best shot at trying to be like me and let's see what you can do. We know he didn't do that. It's funny how we live like that though. But we know that's not God's intention. So why did he make us? Well, every single person in this room would agree that he made us for a relationship. Amen? That he made us because he genuinely loves us. And here's something so interesting. He didn't make Adam and say, here's the steps on how you can get to being in my image. 
I've designed you for my image, but here's how you got to get to it. He didn't do that. He just made Adam and Eve in his image. Adam was not created to keep the law. There wasn't one yet. (laughs) He wasn't created to keep the law. He was made in God's image. When you're made in God's God's image and you're, you're automatically, because you're created in Him, you are like Him, in Him, and for Him, what's your purpose of life? I think it's to be His. I think it's to minister to Him and to allow Him to minister to you and to live in this communion and relationship and togetherness. And then we see that, you know, there's these two trees. And again, so I said I don't have time to go teach this. But there's two trees. And I, if I can very simply explain it to you. The tree of life, the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Hello? <laughs> the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man's attempt at righteousness. Just to simplify. Eat from the tree of life. You're righteous because he's righteous. Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Try to be like him in your own efforts. And so... There's this, you know, the story is, there's the serpent, the devil comes, the serpent comes to talk to them. Whether you believe it was an actual serpent or not, we won't go down that road today because I have some theological opinions on that. But anyway, point is, the, the voice of the enemy comes, and it's, if you will eat of that tree, your own attempt to be like God, you'll be like him. In other words, if you just tried, if you just did it, and Hey, you can actually do these things. You can actually know what's good and what's evil and make the right decisions. And then you'll be like God. And so they believe this, and God knew this was going to happen. This wasn't a shock. God put, he has a master plan, and he put it into motion with a garden. You get it? God was not shocked at Adam's choice. God has a master plan, and we're going to get to that. This is what the grace of God is establishing. But what's very clear is that man chose self-sufficiency. Self-righteousness, our own attempt to be like God. And what happened? The moment they ate of the fruit, they realized, nope, no way, it's not going to happen. I'm naked. When did that happen? You get it? And so suddenly they're covering themselves. They're immediately aware of their inability to be like God. So they cover themselves. See, the sinful nature is rooted in man's attempt to be like God. When we forget, it is his desire to create us in his image. I need to move on from that. But, so you can, you can clearly see in the beginning, God creates Adam for relationship. He teaches us. His, his statement of intent is so clear. I want to walk with you in the garden, in an environment of who I am. I want to rule and reign together. I want to walk in communion together. There was nothing in that transaction with God between God and man that had to do with them reaching a standard. And then they made a decision to do it in their own strength. And still after that, God's not saying, here's the law. It was not his first response to man's fall. In fact, for quite a long time, man still lived in, under the fall, in sin, without the law. We get to Abraham, and I love this about Abraham. Galatians 3.6 says this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is before the law. Here's Abraham, pagan Iraqi guy, who hears the word of the Lord and God just goes, Abraham, I want to bless you and I want to bless the nations through you. And, and in fact, Abraham's the first guy where God preaches the gospel to him. I don't have time to go into this, but Abraham receives the message of the gospel from God, and he just goes, you're good, I believe you. And God goes, thank you, you're righteous. 
This is after the fall and before the law. Are you seeing this? And not only that, but then you look at Abraham's life and you're like, the guy does some really messed up bad things. Like, they go to Egypt and he pretends that his wife is his sister so that Pharaoh won't kill him. And then he like gives his wife as his sister to Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh f- finds out about it. He's like, what the heck is going on here? You're, what's wrong with you, bro? Why would you do this, right? This is Abraham, the righteousness of God. Does that not offend your mind? Like, that, how is that possible? It didn't offend God's. I mean, God wasn't too happy about it, and he made that clear to Abraham. But it didn't change that God was for Abraham. It didn't change that his hand was on Abraham. It didn't change that he loved him. You get this? So he believed God. This is before the law. We're seeing he accessed the righteousness of God simply by faith. Then we, let's fast forward a bit to Moses. God calls Moses when he was on the run and hiding because he murdered someone. <laughs> you got to see this. Like the grace of God is just, it's so wild. It's through the whole gospel. You know, because we go, oh, the Mosaic law. Moses was the guy who got the law. Yeah, guess how God called him? He was running and in hiding because he killed someone, murderer. And God goes, I'm going to use that guy to free my people. I'm going to take the murderer. Like, I don't know about you, but we get all weird when we know things about people's lives. And we go like, sure, that's, I can't believe they did that. And Anyone a murderer in the room? <laughs> don't lift your hand. <laughs> don't point at your wife. <laughs> I'm teasing. Oh, I love it. I love it. Point is, murderer, it's, in your mind, it's the worst of the worst. It's the worst of the worst. He killed somebody. And God's like, I'm going to use you. I just need you to have a moment where you hear, my, you hear my voice and you hear what I speak over your life. Moses is like, I can't speak. I'm, I stutter. And, I, and God's going like, just, you just go. I'm going to put words in your mouth. I will tell you what to say. I'll give you the strategy. And what's interesting is he leads the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And then we see God does something amazing. He invites Israel to come up the mountain into his glory. God didn't say only Moses. Are you with me? God did not just say, all right, everybody, set up camp and then send Moses up. I like him, but the rest of you not so much. He said he invited them, and he invited them to come and be a kingdom of priests. Are you seeing this? And the people see the glory of God on the mountain, which, don't get me wrong, it was pretty scary, lightning and thunder and cloud of glory. And I mean, it's just, you can imagine, it's the splendor of God is on Mount Sinai. And so they look at that and they're like, ooh, no, no, no. Moses, we'll send you. You go up the mountain. And then this is, I'm, this is, I'm paraphrasing for the sake of time, but you go up the mountain, you find out what God wants. And you tell us what we have to do to stay right with him. Right? So you can you got to see this. God's heart and his intention was not the law. The law was put in place to serve a purpose. Okay? He invites them up the mountain. They don't want to go. They send Moses. Moses goes up, and this is what I love. What was Moses' experience on the mountain? It wasn't, let me tell you what you've done wrong. Let me explain. I know that you've done what I asked you to do. You brought the Israelites up. But let's go back to that murder thing, and let's just sort that out quick. No, in fact, it says God, God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. That's beautiful. God's invitation into that realm of glory was face to face friendship. Regardless of who Moses was, that's what God wanted. And then he, he receives the law. Now, it's amazing because the law, 
which was, you know, 10 commandments, but became 10 commandments and 613 laws. You break one, you break the whole thing. It's not like, well, you kept the 10, but the 613 are like second tier laws that you can kind of, it's not like that. If you break one, you break them all. And so this law gets put into place. Moses sees a pattern that God shows him. He puts it into place. And God is now, he's, he's put the law in place to reveal to Israel their need for a Savior. To reveal to Israel that they will never reach this standard. So the law comes and what happens? They very quickly see, because Moses comes down from the mountain, guess what they've done? They built an, a, a god, an idol, out of gold, a cow. It's wild. Like, the Bible's crazy. And the thing is, we go, like, these guys, they're nuts. You probably would have done the same thing. You would have been there throwing your gold on the thing, like, let's all worship the cow that got us out of Egypt. This is what man does. It's the fickleness of the nature of man without God. But God, He knows. He's, he's got a master plan, and He's taking man on this journey. And He does something interesting. He puts the law in place. He introduces the law to reveal the standard of righteousness. He says, okay, you wanna, you wanna, you're asking the question, Find out what God wants. We'll do it in order to be right. He goes, here it is. Here's what righteousness, holiness, and perfection looks like. Let's see if you can do it. And he knows that they can't. And Israel figures out very quickly that they can't. Man will never reach the standard. And so what happens is there's an annual sacrifice that's, that happens every year. must be made every year to atone for their sins. Now, can you see how God is using the law and then this need for an annual sacrifice to atone for sin to teach them about two things. One, a substitutionary sacrifice, and two, covenant. Because they're not going to understand the grace of God until they understand those two things. Something has to die in your place for what you deserve. And secondly, you need to understand covenant. That was a covenant made under the law, but he was teaching them and preparing them for a new covenant. You with me? That's a, we'll, I'll have to break this down and, and teach it, but... So now you've got to ask yourself the question, what was the purpose of the law? The law was given to reveal our need for Jesus, our need for a Savior. The law was given as a mirror to expose our inability to be like God without God making us like Him. And then, this is crazy, in Galatians it says, the law increases and expands our awareness of sin. <laughs> this is intense, right? So the law is holy, it's not evil, but it's serving a purpose. And its purpose is to reveal to us our need for Jesus. It actually increases and expands our awareness of sin. The law produces sin consciousness. Awareness of sin. Are you with me? This is the purpose of the law. And it did this so that we would realize our need for Jesus and begin to look for a Savior. See, in, uh, in, it's also in Galatians, I think it, it's either Galatians or Romans, where it says... Before the law, there was still sin, but people didn't know what it was. How did you know you were sinning if there was no law? How did, you, if, how did you know it was sin if there wasn't a standard that was holding you to it? So sin was in the world before the law, but they didn't understand that it was sin. And that was a, quite a while that God was very much okay with that until he introduced the law for a purpose, which became that mirror, which be, began to show us, okay, whoa, we need him. We need Jesus. And there's a life that he's called us to live that's better than this. But we can only get there in him. So the law exposes the nature of sin and it reveals our need for God's divine intervention and power. So the law's holy. It's beautiful. In fact, in the New Testament, it shows us that the Holy Spirit actually has written the law on our hearts and minds now. He's engraved it in us. It's holy. It's beautiful. It's not something that we, that we shy away from, but we understand the purpose of the law. You are not freed by the law. 
You are bound by it. That's in your Bible. So we have to be clear that the law is not God's plan for man. <laughs> and, and I'm going to unpack this a little more practically because I know that in the principle we'd all go, yeah, yeah, I agree. But now we've got to think about how we're living our everyday life. How, how we live our Christian life holding ourselves and one another to a standard that none of us are going to achieve. That we are not called to allow the law to become a perspective. Are you with me? See, again, coming back to the beginning, if grace is not so scandalous that it offends your mind and causes you to love with only a supernatural love, then it's not the purity and potency of the gospel. The grace of God will produce in you a supernatural love that's not your own. It's not your attempt to love. It's His love in you. Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God was poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So the love that we're called to love Him with and to love one another with is not our own attempt to love. It's His love. It's supernatural. It's like, man, actually my flesh wants to punch you in the face, but I love you. And I don't know why. It's God. It has to be supernatural. This is the power of the church. Can you see how the church becomes the answer? Our reaction to the things that should provoke us unto other things provokes us to love. Because the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of grace, the person of grace is inside of us. And if He loved me in this scandalous way, then He's called me to love the same way. Is there a single moment of your day that Jesus looks at you and gets frustrated because you're not living in the fullness of what He paid for? Is there? No. Jesus is never looking at you and going, come on. I did all of this for you to be like me and live in what I've called you to live in. And you just, you just can't, you're not getting it. How many times do you want to go around this mountain? He's not doing that. Because he's made a decision. It's a covenantal decision that he upholds. See, the covenant of grace, it's not one that you have to uphold. It's a covenant that he upholds. It is immovable, unshakable. It will never change. He looks at you and he sees himself. The transforming power of the gospel is not in introspective uh, a self-attempt to, to get it right or to figure out the answer. It's found in a denial of self and taking on the fullness of who Jesus is. And let me tell you, that's a journey. It's a journey of faith. It's called the good fight of faith. Every day you've got to make a decision to believe. And the beauty is that grace will hold you when you're struggling. Grace will hold you in the seasons where God is teaching you to believe. Can I just encourage you? This plan is foolproof. He's not letting you go. This is how the righteous become brighter and brighter. Not because we're getting better, because He's getting brighter and brighter in me. So the law is not God's plan for man. So Jesus dies. So we go, okay, why did Jesus die? Most of the time we've heard a gospel message preached that's purely centered around Jesus died for your sins. Right? Now there's nothing wrong with that statement, but it's only half the... The truth. Jesus died for your sins. Because if that's, if that's the message that we believe and that we've taken a hold of and we leave it there, then we're just grateful for another chance. But the reality is, if it's just Jesus died for your sins, every time you make a mistake, every time you're stuck in a cycle of sin, it's like, thank you, Jesus, you died for my sins because I just can't find my way out of this thing. Like, I'm trying. Just when I think I'm out, oh, I'm back in. Just when I, Oh, Jesus, thank you that you died for my... So now we live our Christian lives just simply grateful to be saved, just, just grateful that you did it. And let me tell you, He's so merciful and so good that He holds you there. Right? 
I'm not even preaching at you and going like, come on, this is silly. No, I'm going, He loves you so much, He'll hold you there. But it's not the fullness of what you can have in Him. There's more. Because He didn't just die for your sins. He died because of your sins, but He died for the plan and purpose of God, which is a people for His own possession. Sons and daughters of the Most High God. You were not designed to be sinners. The Lord defined you as that. Jesus never did. Are you with me? You don't remain a sinner saved by grace. You were one when you got saved. Sinner saved by grace. Now you're called to be a saint. Living in the grace of God. Empowered by the grace of God. Being who God's called you to be. Not thinking about sin anymore. Because the problem is, if we stay in this teaching of just, thank God that He saved me from my sins, I begin to perpetuate a cycle of sin consciousness in my Christianity. I'm so aware of my shortcomings. I'm so aware of my failures. I'm so aware of what I'm not getting right, that I'm continually in this place with God, going, just thank you that you still love me, the mess that I am in this place. God, I'm just, I'm just holding on. And He's going, man, I, I love you. I'm holding that place, but can I bring you to this, the fullness of what I paid for, which is, you're my son. You're my daughter. I am pleased with you. I'm not mad at you. I'm not disappointed in you. I'm not frustrated with you. In fact, if you'll listen to me, if you'll listen to what's coming out of my mouth, you'll realize that the things you think I'm thinking, I'm actually not. We're going, God, look at my mess and my struggle and my situation and my circumstance. I just, oh, God, I don't know how to do this. I'm so sorry. And, and he's going like, I want to tell you how I've actually set you apart for the things of the kingdom. And I love you so much. And when you pray, when I hear your voice, it touches my heart and ministers to me. That's the conversation God's having. And we're over here while he's saying that, going like, God, I'm just such a wreck and I hate this place. And I love Can you see the disconnect? And, and God's like, he's holding us. He's loving us. But he's saying, come. Come deeper into relationship with me. Come and see what I see. Come and see my perspective. Christ died because of your sins. He became the once and for all substitutionary sacrifice. He did it. It's done. It's finished. But you died with Him, but you were also raised with Him. Raised with Him to new life. Not only that, but He sends His Holy Spirit. And He says, don't do anything until you receive Him. And when you receive Him, when you receive the person of Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus... Baptized with fire and power. It's not just power to do miracles, signs, wonders. It's the power of Jesus in you to be like Him. To be a witness. In fact, that word is martyr. That's super intense. And then you've got to understand, what is He doing? Because He does this. He dies. He's raised from the dead. He puts His Spirit in us. And then He goes. Or He goes and then puts His Spirit in us. And then it's, He says, I'm coming back. And you go, whoa, hold on, this is crazy. It's like, you saved us, and then it's like, you put your spirit in us, but then you're going, but then you're coming back, and then there's this period of time on the earth, and it's like, what? Why? See, God's on a journey with the heart of man, where he is establishing and building his dream. He's coming back for a bride that's been prepared for him. How is she prepared? The Holy Spirit is revealing Jesus to the church, and we are actually believing in him. Not just believing that he died and was raised, but believing that I, I died and was raised with him. And because of that, I've been prepared for good works that he prepared beforehand for me. So now I'm beginning to live out the works, nature, and life of Christ. And I'm doing it alongside my brothers and sisters, and I'm, I'm a part of the family of God. And I'm a living stone in a heavenly building that's being prepared, a, a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, to carry the presence of God. Where there won't be a temple made with hands, but God will be in their midst. 
He's coming back again. And he's coming back for a people made ready. By what? By the grace of God. Grace is preparing us as his people to be his for all of eternity. He's after a people for his own possession. And this is where the Great Commission comes in. That's why he said the gospel will be preached to all creation and then the end will come. The Great Commission is central to his return because he's after hearts. He's after people. It's a kingdom of hearts. Right? And I don't want to get into eschatology and stuff because I'll probably freak you out and disappoint you. But the reality is I'm not so sure God is totally caught up in us trying to make this world a better place. Because while we're off trying to make the world a better place, people are going, spending eternity apart from Him in hell because they don't know who He is. Because we didn't have the courage to be obedient to the gospel. We got so caught up in something that was more about us, making things better for me. Making things better for me, or making things better for my children, or making things better for my grandchildren, or the generations to come. No, it's legacy, it's inheritance. No, you've missed it. Those are all beautiful things. And if it's, a, if it's the byproduct of serving Jesus, amen. But the reality is this, God is after hearts. And we do not need believers in spheres of influence trying to change the sphere rather than trying to reach the people in the sphere of influence. See, the grace of God is that message that will set your heart on fire because you'll begin to understand how loved you are. You'll begin to understand, if I'm this loved and God loves people the way He loves me, if He forgave me, shows me mercy, and His grace is sufficient for me, and He sees that about everybody else, that's why we get on planes and go to Egypt. You get it? It's like he loves people. He's after people. So when we hear as the church 3.2 billion people who haven't heard his name, it should bother us. Because it's not just that they haven't heard his name. They haven't heard this message. They haven't heard how much he loves them. They don't know that there's actually a father. Jesus comes, he introduces God as father. The message of the kingdom is father. (laughs) Are you seeing this? And God's going like, I actually want this message to hit the whole earth. This is how my glory covers the earth. Oh, Jesus. The purity and the potency of the gospel. If we, and my, even for my own life, I'm like, Lord, I, I just want to live there. I want to stay in that place. But the purity and the potency of the gospel, man, it changes the way we see life. It changes the way we see one another. It changes the way we make decisions. It changes everything. It's something that, it's not just that I have to give my life to it. My life has got caught up in it. It's wrapped up in it. I'm breathing oxygen because of this. (laughs) And so when it becomes, when the message and the man, Jesus, becomes who I am, it becomes my identity, then it's not something that I'm trying to get to. It's what I'm living in and walking in every day because He's faithful. He's immovable in this. If we'll yield and rely on Him every day, He's consistent and faithful to minister this truth to you. If you really believed this, what do you think the state of your soul and your mind would look like? That's not a heavy. We all go through stuff. We all process things. We all have to... Uh, steward our hearts and our, our soul realm, our mind, our will, our emotions. We have to renew it and let Holy Spirit renew the mind. But how do we do that? It, it can't be my, by my effort to try and bring understanding to my head so I stop thinking like that. That's what most of us do. 
I'm trying to stop this thinking pattern. I don't know why. I can't fix it. It's exhausting. It's tiring. It's a perpetual pattern and cycle in my life. I just can't break it. And I'm, I'm getting the tools and the things. I'm trying to fix it. No. <laughs> we need the message of the gospel of grace. We need the reality of who Jesus is. We need to understand that I died and I was raised. So what am I doing? I'm making a conscious decision in my heart to believe that what he says is true. And it's not going to be based on how I feel about it. I'm not led by my feelings. The righteous live by faith. Faith. Not feelings. Faith. See, feelings follow fact. <laughs> but we don't live by facts. Because you can say, no, you don't understand. It's, it's a fact. I feel this way. Like, or I am... I am sad. I'm angry, so that's why I'm, I'm feeling the emotions that I'm feeling. Well, we're not led by that. And it's not that we don't feel those things. It's that we can bring them into submission to something that's higher. And I do it by what? By faith. Meaning, <laughs> meaning there's the emotion of sadness. There's the emotion of fear. There's the emotion of whatever you're journeying. And you're going, thank you, Jesus, that I have the mind of Christ. Thank you that today I'm walking in the mercy and the grace of God. Thank you that you look at me and you love me. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you're renewing my mind. You're changing the way that I think. I've taken the emphasis off of how I feel, and I'm just beginning to speak and declare and thank Him for what He says is true. And it sounds so funny. It's like, no, man, that's like robotic stuff. No, you don't understand. You're speaking to your soul. You're, you're, you're telling your soul to yield to the truth that's been infused with your spirit, man. Because you're one with God. And maybe, like, this is the thing. We, go, we do it for two or three days and we go, it's not working. <laughs> well, he hasn't changed and he hasn't, nothing's changed from his side. So just stay steadfast in faith. Fight the good fight of faith. And as you begin to do that, you start to see breakthrough in your life. And the breakthrough comes because he's working. <clears throat> Amen. See, there's a difference between taking this message and doing a copy and paste on the wounds of your life and believing it and letting it transform who you are. The difference is when we just take a message and copy and paste, we are not allowing the truth of the gospel to confront the matters of our heart in the secret place with God. Now, hear me on this because I want to be clear. I don't see the Lord intentionally after trying to confront people on a public forum or in front of others. Or he's not, he, God is not a God who exposes. Never. It's just not there. New Testament God, who's the same God but in a new covenant, does not want to expose His children. See, this is, I'm just going to touch on this for a second because... If we think that about him, how, how are you going to run to him as father? How do you run to him as father if you believe it's in his heart to expose you if necessary? We've got to teach on this. The discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord is never punishment or just to try and uh, prove a point of what's right and wrong. That's law. The discipline of the Lord is that he wants to form truth in you and he wants to teach you who you are. You get this? So when he disciplines us, he's discipling us 
into himself. He's saying, I want to show you that's not who you are. This is who you are. Listen to what's coming out of my mouth. I'm speaking truth over you. You're my son. You're my daughter. See, we've got to be careful because we think, no, I'm just in a season where the Lord is chastising me and exposing me. And we use these words because of a scripture in Hebrews. But if you go read it in context, you understand that when the Lord disciplines his children, it's a father with his children. And he's not just a father. He's the perfect father. He's a good father. And his discipline, see, the thing is, punishment on its own does not produce transformation. It produces guilt, shame, and condemnation that keeps you trapped in what you know you cannot achieve or become. Hello? If you're a parent and all you do is, with your kids, all you do is punish your kids, what does it produce in your children? A mentality that they just never get it right. So it's just, they're just wrong. And they're just sorry that they're wrong, but they don't think they can ever get it right because all they ever get is punishment, exposed, and so it begins to produce a nature that's what? Failure-focused, sin-focused. And then the thing is, this is what happens with guilt, shame, and condemnation. You begin to believe that that's your identity. You begin to believe that that's just me. I just, I can't get it right, and I'm just this, I'm just that. So can you see why it's important? We've got to go, what my perspective of the Father, my perspective of, sorry, I've been preaching to this group, I'll come this up. I'm left-handed, so I lean that, that way, but the perspective of God, our perspective of who He is, affects how we will receive from Him. You hear that? If I believe He's disappointed in me, if I believe He's upset with me, if I believe that, you know, God is, He just, you know, I really need to get this right. He's not talking to me because I, I need to get right. Or how many of you have said this? I'm just not in a good place right now. Well, remember what I said in the beginning? Before you did anything, guess what He did? He sat you at the right hand of the Father in Christ in heavenly places. You are always in a good place. You just, you need to get your head around that. You need to remind your soul, I'm in a good place. I can be in the deepest valley, and I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. It gives me peace and a security and an authority to do what He's called me to do without being shaken by what's around me. So your perspective of the Father will affect the way you hear Him, what you hear from Him, and how you receive Him. Now, if that's the Father's nature, and we are becoming like Him, and He's forming His nature in us, what do you think the church looks like? When the grace of God becomes the culture of 24-7 church, which I believe it's becoming, then the worst of the worst, and I believe this will mark the end time church, the worst of the worst can come into this culture and not feel condemned, judged, criticized, but what they'll be is loved, <laughs> received, and they'll, they'll take a hold of a gospel that can meet them in their mess and bring them into fullness. And with a group of people that are not measuring each other or them based on what we think is bad or worse. or Let me just put it like this. What the Lord did is it took away our measure of sin. Because we go, tell a, a lie once in your life, ever. Okay? Because if you've, if you've lied once, ever in your whole life, you're a liar. You get it? So that's this person. One time in their whole life lied, liar. And then we, we measure it, you know, that you've got that, then you've got maybe thief, or, you know, it just kind of, we measure it out, and then you've got all the way up to adulterer, murderer, and then murderer or whatever, I don't know what's the worst for you, but that's what's in my head. And it's like, now you've got this thing of sin, and so if I'm at church and I'm relating to the person who told a lie, it's all good, everything's great. No, we all lie. That's good. But this one here, no, no, hold on. You need to go on a journey 
You need to get things sorted out in your life because let me just tell you, that is unacceptable. That's disgusting. I can't believe you'd even do that. And God goes, no, you don't understand. That way that you've measured sin is not how I see it. Ten commandments, 613 laws. You miss one, you've missed them all. The one who told one lie in their whole life and the murderer, same sin. On the earth, we go, no, that guy spends 25 years in prison. This person gets a you know, kiss on the cheek and it's okay, I forgive you. And so, yes, there's systems on the earth that we live by, but we've got to understand that according to, to the Father, if it wasn't for Jesus, the mass murderer and the person who told the lie once in their life would both be spending eternity separate from God. See, that's what the law highlights. It goes, oh my goodness, I need Jesus just as much as the mass murderer. And this is why, if you look at what God does in the Bible, He is not afraid to use the worst of the worst. Because the story of God, the redemption of God, is that He takes the worst of the worst and He makes them beautiful. Because of who He is. God can take the worst situations, the worst mistakes and failures in behavior and transform it by the potency and the purity of the message of grace, the gospel of grace, when it's believed. Look at Paul. You get it? Again, Paul, like the guy was persecuting Christians, beating them up, imprisoning them, potentially killing them. And, and God uses him to be the Gentile to the apostles. Moses, the murderer. Abraham, the pagan Iraqi guy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So can you imagine a culture of grace where you come into the church and you receive this nature, this heart, that's like all of you. doesn't matter where you are in life. doesn't matter what your, your failures are, your mistakes are, your struggle, what you're currently struggling, your addictions, your, your brokenness. It doesn't matter. When you come in, we have a confidence in the presence of God and in the purity and potency of the gospel that when you hear the message of grace, open your heart and begin to believe you will be saved and transformed. Not just saved out of something, but saved into a new and living way. Dead to sin, alive to God, Romans 6.11. Reckon yourselves dead to sin, alive to God. It changes everything about us. But again, all of that comes by faith. Are you with me? So we've been, as a church, we've been sharing and, and, and preaching into what God's doing in this house. And last week I shared on Together for His Glory that every single one of us are placed together in a family and God's, we're built together as living stones. We're built together as His body to create and build a dwelling place for God on the earth, that place of agreement between heaven and earth, that we are seeing the kingdom of God established on the earth. We're saying yes to His dream, all these things. And it's beautiful. And I'm just realizing more and more that as we do this, we have to be rooted and grounded in the love of God, established in the message of the, of the truth, established in the gospel, so that the culture that's being built in 24-7 is one of His grace, His mercy, and His love. And that's how we're going to see people transformed. See, this is the message that saves and transforms, and this is the message that sets you on fire to share the gospel with others. If it's not good enough news to make you want to tell somebody about it, is it really good news? It's the good news of the gospel, but not good enough for me to actually tell someone. Majority of Christians is like, when was the last time you told someone about Jesus? Maybe you need to come back and get a fresh revelation of how good this news is, because when news is good, you want to tell people about it. 
You get it? So my encouragement today, if you will allow, that wasn't as fiery as I thought. That was, I was quite calm, don't you think? I thought I was very collected and maybe the Lord's actually making a pastor out of me. Really, my, my encouragement today is the Lord loves us so much and grace will hold us in and through every season. And so if we'll allow the grace of God to do the work of God in us, His righteousness, His mercy, His love, His transforming power, what a joy to see God do that work in our hearts and through us. This is how we're going to see our lives transformed. This is how we see the city transformed. This is how we see the nations transformed. Amen. So Jesus, I pray that this word would encourage our hearts this morning. I pray that we would even just be provoked to receive afresh the revelation of your grace, to receive afresh how good, how beautiful you are. Lord, I ask this morning if there's anything that I've said that's not in your heart, I I really do pray that it would be forgotten. But Lord, that which is your gospel, which I believe today as we've shared the word, the, the purity and potency of the gospel, I pray that it would cut to the heart, it would bring life and transformation, it would bring joy, fullness of joy. It would change our perspectives. It would change the way we think. It would change the way we see. It would change the way we live, our decision-making and how we live with one another. Lord, I celebrate you for the amazing, incredible God that you are. And I just say thank you. Thank you for the joy of salvation. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Lord, if there's anybody in this room today that has not heard the gospel in this way, if there's anyone in this room who the message of the gospel that they heard was centered purely around sin and the mess and get right with God. Lord, I pray that today you'd show them that it's so much more than that, that you dealt with our sin so that we could be sons and daughters living in your goodness every day. You've invited every single person in this room to a relationship with you, to know you, to walk with you, to live with you, to receive you. And so Jesus, I ask that you would do what no man can do, that you would touch every heart, change every heart and every mind. Lord, we love you this morning. We celebrate you, and we just say thank you. Thank you for what you're doing in this house. Thank you for what you're building. We receive you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.